All right, we are here with Michael Sierra Arevalo from the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Oh, thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. So Michael recently published an outstanding article, American Policing and the Danger Imperative. It just came out in Law and Society. First off, congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I'll tell you what I loved about the article. So we have been talking about police culture this semester. And one of the inescapable sort of facets of the argument is the danger that police confront themselves. And it was just amazing to see an article that just strikes at the heart of it. You know, so it's like, this is my impression. Correct me if you see it differently. But like, I get the sense that police are part of a very politically fraught debate. Mm. And on one side, there are people who are worried about, you know, uh, the police's relationship with violence or differential, you know, enforcement of crimes or, you know, how the how police culture's political role of the police has been taking a turn that concerns a lot of people. All of those, you know, you might attach to, uh, you know, liberal concerns or, uh, you know. But on the other side... It seems to me there are two major arguments or major rebuttals coming out from uh, those who are against the criticisms levied at police. The first one is they say, look, there's like a million police, you know, there's a million police. And yes, there are. You, I'm sure you can routinely find examples of awful police behavior, but it's going to be like that in any community of a million people. It's sort of like the bad apples argument. And that one, I think there is a, a very strong sociological sort of, you know, argument against that, where they say, no, there are structural aspects of policing that are present. But the second part of the argument, the second argument, uh, which is also effective, is proponents of police or those who oppose the criticisms mm -hmm. le levied at police say, look, policing is dangerous. You do not understand. Civilians do not understand what we deal with. You do not understand the exigencies of our occupation, and so you're not you're not fit to argue, uh, you know, against what we do. You don't understand. And what was amazing about that argument is that uh, mm -hmm. it strikes right at the heart of that that second big sort of second big argument that police face danger. So let let's start off. What's the danger imperative in your article? Can you start us off by explaining that to us? Sure. So the danger imperative in the simplest sense is this sort of perceptual or cognitive filter. So sociologists have talked about this as a cultural frame. Um, this has been talked about often in the context of urban poverty. Um, so Eli Anderson in his, his seminal book, The Code of the Street, he didn't call it a frame, but he was describing a way of seeing the world that filtered it in such a way that from the outside, it seems ridiculous that you would attack somebody because they disrespected you. Within the frame of the street, the code is what he calls it, it actually makes a lot of sense as to why you would defend your respect, defend your honor, your property with violence at the drop of a hat, right? So that was kind of what he was trying to explain in that particular context. So the danger imperative in the policing context is actually similar in certain regards. And it actually is a filter that highlights the salience of violence and potential death on patrol. Yeah, you, you say that the, it's, it's like you're arguing the role of violence is very prominent in the collective imagination of police officers, or you call it the occupational consciousness of police officers. Hmm. But is it exaggerated or is it a, a real threat that they face? So it is a, it, it's a both and, honestly. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, there's in, and my thinking on this has evolved. So I think when I was first beginning to write on this, I did with a lot of 
a lot of writers for Vox or 538 would do, which is go and look up the death statistics. And it is true by, by fatalities, policing is not even the top 10. You have truck drivers, electricians, construction workers. That is true. The reality, though, is that we're not just worried about deaths. In fact, we just published a paper, myself and Justin Nix, uh, on firearm assaults. And most firearm assaults, I think it's, I think it's something like between 75 and, and 80 aught percent of firearm assaults do not result in a death. But that's still a cop getting shot. When you look at assaults and injuries overall, policing is one of the most dangerous occupations, if, if that's your particular measure. And so the thinking has evolved in that regard, where accounting for all kinds of danger, it is true that policing is different from falling off of a roof as a construction worker. It's different from a mine collapsing on you if you're a miner or getting shocked as an electrician. There's no agency to electricity. The fire doesn't have consciousness that kills the fireman. But in policing, you're worried about a suspect, a person, a being uh, that could strike at you at any moment from anywhere. At least that is that is the thinking. So that is true. It is empirically true that any shift could be fatal. We're not at the question of probability, however. And so when you ask, is it exaggerated? I think that the the steps that are taken by officers right. are comparable to sort of the way that the airlines treat plane crashes, right? You go above and beyond at every turn to prevent catastrophe. The difference is that people don't usually die as a result of the steps that airlines take. In policing, as I argue in the paper, they actually do stuff in the name of staying safe that gets them killed and gets the public killed. Right. So you're differentiating between risk of injury or death and like, it's like fear, basically, Hmm. in plain language. Is it that they're scared? Whether or not it's an objective risk, is there an occupational like scaredness of it? Yes. So if you ask them and I, you know, and I would talk with them in the car and I would ask like, how do you not walk around scared all the time? And some of them would just, they would deny the fear. They would say, well, it's not about fear. It's about being prepared. It's not about fear. It's about being vigilant. Others would very bluntly say, and they would never say that they were themselves scared, or they would say there's a little bit of fear, but they would say that other officers, like, well, some cops do walk around scared and those are dangerous cops. And I don't want to be around those officers. And I don't associate with those officers because I don't want to catch complaints. I don't want to do these things. I think it's, it's in some ways, um, it's a simplistic view to say that it's simply fear because fear is something that you, I mean, you imagine dilated pupils and sweat and shaking hands. And it's actually not that. It's not that deeply emotional response. It is something that is much more normative. Think of it as a casually embodied. They talk about this potential for catastrophe as if it's like, you know, it could rain today or there could be a hostage situation. Both of those things are basically equally likely and they need to be prepared for both eventualities. So it's like a central organizing principle in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to say it. The culture is built around an expectation of violence and a a preparedness for violence and a vigilance about violence. It it pervades the -the on-the-job mindset, even if the objective risk is not extremely high. Is that that it? That's correct. I think that's that's a succinct way of putting it. Okay. Now, where does this come from? Like, where does this fixation on the the risk of violence come from? It's a good question. Uh, So in some ways, I have to speak outside of the paper because, and this is, again, as the thinking has developed, uh, I I look back to some of the classical work by Peter Manning. So Peter Manning wrote about police work as drama, as dramaturgy. He was very influenced by Goffman's thinking. And his, his main point was 
The police actually know that they don't directly affect crime. It's like the central assumption. The public believes this, so the police also deeply believe it. And there's there's uh, there's some romanticism wrapped in there about what it means to be a police officer and what it is that we as police officers do. But the people at the top of the of the the building, the it depends on where you are. They'll call it the third floor, the fifth floor, downtown, upstairs, whatever they call it. They know that they don't have direct control over crime rates. But there's a lot of energy spent by police departments, by police unions, by police advocates selling this version, portraying this version of police competence to the public. They're justifying their existence. They're justifying funding. They're justifying legal change. They're justifying all kinds of things because they are able to control the crime rate. Those beliefs about what the police do exist way before a recruit shows up in the academy. So that's my big caveat. You're you're not really a blank slate. And I think in my, I think my paper is in some ways guilty of this as well, is that I sort of have to prescribe where does this come from to what I was able to see in the field. But there's a lot of cops and there's been some great work on uh, the advertising materials used by police departments, on media, be it film or TV. And there's this wild overrepresentation of car chases and gunfights and rappelling out of helicopters and kicking in doors. Uh, so some people definitely join the police department to do that stuff. I think what's important is that the police department in the academy doesn't do a whole lot of dissuading you from that. Okay. It doubles down on certain versions of what it means to be a police officer. And central to that, perhaps, and I, I would argue most centrally to that, is that officer safety is your number one concern at all times. And you must be ready, willing, and able to use and deploy violence in defense of your life, the life of another officer, or of a citizen. So the academy is really key for giving officers lots and lots of examples to prove to them just how dangerous their job is. And so in the paper, uh, I provide insight into one video in particular that anyone that's in the world of policing knows, which I think Peter Moskos, I think, described it in a recent Vox article as like the most famous video that nobody knows. But if you're a cop, you know the Dinkeller video. You know about this 1998 murder of Kyle Dinkeller on this rural road on this windy evening in Georgia. Uh, and he's shot dead by Andrew Brannon. He's a Vietnam veteran. He's been off his meds for a few days. And it's a lesson to officers that if you hesitate to use force when you need to, it's going to cost you your life or it's going to cost somebody else their life. I, I don't show the video in any presentations that I do or to students. It's incredibly graphic, not visually. You can hear his dying screams. One officer that I spoke with in the field remembered explicitly. You can hear the blood gurgling in the video. Mm -hmm. Officers cry when the video is shown to them, as I've read in, in certain accounts of it. That's what you see sometimes like very early on in the academy, like day two, day one. They show you this thing. And then there's fight training. There's virtual scenario training. So you use infrared pistols or uh, a variety of other uh, simulation firearms to train on when and how to use mm -hmm. force. You do scenario training with training officers where almost inevitably the suspect that you're stopping is armed. They do attack you. And so you're training how to go about interacting with this person and subduing this person. The, there's, a, there's a great report from the BJS that just breaks down the average across the country. And there is just a lot more. Defense, it's called defensive tactics. It's a euphemism for punching, kicking, wrestling, jujitsu, et cetera. Firearms training, less lethal training, then say de-escalation training, procedural justice, the things that we all say that we care about, but are they're just simply not as represented in the in the academy. So that is to some sense, this is a long answer. That is to some sense where it it starts. Uh, and then it really continues to be inculcated in officers as they as they move to the police department on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, that's interesting. It's almost like, so there are institutional mechanisms to pick out 
awful crimes that have occurred like in the last 30 years. Really, what, what we're talking about is something that happened 30 years ago. Probably one of the most egregious examples that has occurred to a population of a million people. So it's like the worst crime in town that happened. It'd be like the worst crime that occurred in Cincinnati over the last 40 years. But it's elevated into sort of the professional socialization curriculum. Mm. And that is what training is sort of built around is like the possibility of those events, the possibility of something awful and how to be prepared for it, how to always look for it. Mm -hmm. So one thing to highlight here, so that Dinkeller video was originally kept very close. It was the, I think it was the Lawrence County Sheriff's Department. So I think other departments requested the video because they heard about it. So it used to be, this was like, this was literally like mailed around for those of your of listeners that don't know what this is, a VHS tape it used to be a rectangle that had a movie on it. And it was put into another rectangle <laughs> that then made the movie come out on your TV with wires. <laughs> but they used to mail the VHS tape around. We're now at a point where we have YouTube. And so the where, where Dean Keller might have been yeah. one of a handful of videos that a department could get their hands on to show. And there's a reason why Dean Keller has, has remained so consistent over quite literally decades, um, why it's still salient in 2020. Mm -hmm. But YouTube now provides this bottomless pool of these rare events. So rare events, they are rare in the scope yeah. of policing. But even rare events, if you compile all of them, and digitize them and make them permanently accessible, it's effectively an infinite pool for officers, training instructors, anyone to draw on and pull and say, look, here's one example, another, three, four, five. You could, you could easily show three dozen of these calls gone bad, of any of these kinds of videos of executions or well, they'll, they'll call them executions or ambushes. We're still talking about a couple dozen over the course of decades, right? Or whatever period they're pulling the videos from. But they're incredibly accessible. Yeah. And police websites like Police One or Officer or Law Enforcement Today, these websites select on this content. They deliberately amplify this content and also disseminate it through Instagram and Facebook and their own social media channels, which officers can very easily access. It's funny. It's, it's like another example of how we are all relying on sort of emotionally searing communication mm. to garner followings and mobilize people. It's, it's interesting. But you're saying, where, where does the objective risk stand? Like when you compare the risk faced by police, the mortal risk, what type of occupations are we talking about that it's commensurate with? In terms of the, the deadly, uh, so the, the fatality rate? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in the top 20. It changes year to year. And I'm, I don't want to go off, off script and, and give you numbers that are not right. Right, right. It is more dangerous than being a professor. Right. <laughs> it is more dangerous than, uh, you know, than working your, your standard office job. But in fact, the, the jobs that supersede it in terms of their fatal risk, again, are basically blue collar jobs. And policing is by and large still very much a blue collar job. It's one of the more secure ones, one of the last places you can get a pension, um, though that right. does seem to be sort of changing in some places. They're revamping the pension structure because some cities are going to go bankrupt uh, as a result of police pensions. Uh, if they don't change things quick. But we are talking about construction workers. Uh, we're talking about electricians. We're talking about, I think at one point it was like lawn, like lawn maintenance. So things like lawn accidents, lawn mowers, tree trimming, things like that. That's up there as well for injury. Oh, trees. Uh, or just falling off roofs, mm -hmm. things of that nature. And so those things are in terms of fatalities higher than, they're more dangerous than policing if we're measuring it by fatality. Right, but you say they don't have that agency. There's not a bad guy to fear. There's no bad tree, right? Fire right. does not have, you, you can't racialize fire. You can't talk about fire as if it has some kind of bias against the police. 
fire isn't violent. A former graduate student friend of mine, he he did a, an ethnography of volunteer firefighters and officers, they'll anthropomorphize fire. They'll say like, yeah, the fire crawled along this way, the fire came for us. But they're sort of imputing that. They're imputing that to this thing that actually just, it, it's just physics. In policing, you are able to draw on any number of of schemas, uh, of sort of scripts to explain how and why violence against the police is happening. And in my field work, the most salient thing was sort of the rise of this war on cops rhetoric. It's more dangerous than ever. Uh, it's never been this bad before. No one in policing has ever had to deal with it the way that we're dealing with it. And empirically speaking, there is no evidence that suggests that violence against police is at an all-time high. If anything, it might be flat if you're talking about things like assaults. If you're talking about fatalities, it is consistently decreasing over the past 50 years. And then you say that there was an interesting argument that I got from your paper. And it was something along the lines of one of the, you know, big justifications that policing uses is uh, for their role or the privilege that they enjoy in societies. They say, listen, if you cut us off, you're going to be the victim of violence. Like you need me on that. You need me to put myself between you and the bad guy. Because if you clip my wings, then the bad guy is coming for you. And then you start getting into narratives that Mm. sort of mix up personal safety training with, you know, political arguments as to why police should be cut. Or reasons why law enforcement shouldn't come down too hard on police Mm -hmm. uh, because it will pose a risk to regular people. Can you uh, explain that a little more to me, that sense that I got from your argument that Mm. the danger imperative serves the institution of policing or might serve sort of the economic or political interests of the profession? I think like all institutions, policing seeks to recreate itself, to preserve itself, right? So... It is the rare police chief that is going to advocate for something like defunding in our current moment. Uh, That's going to cost them officers. That is going to cost them response time. All the metrics that current policing is measured by are actually likely to suffer in the context of defunding unless we shift other parts of the structure. If If you just slash a budget and don't change anything else around it, there is no doubt in my mind that you will see longer response times, yeah. that it might be two or three days before an officer gets to right. a cold burglary of a home, right? Where there's nobody actively there, there's just lost property. That is a very low priority item in a city that has a budget that's been slashed, for example. What you're talking about in terms of sort of like leveraging politically, this organizational scholars would call it like an organizational like assumption. So this is some classic shine stuff. Uh, so organizational culture is built assumptions, then values, then like uh, than the artifacts that reflect them. You can mobilize this assumption of peril, uh, of, of mortal danger in a way that becomes politically unassailable. What mayor is going to go toe to toe with a union head or a police chief that's saying, we need to keep our officers safe? Even in the current moment, people like, I think people have this misconception that policing is now deeply, deeply unpopular. I would suggest they go and look at the Pew reports uh, that look at public sentiment of policing. There was a dip around 2014. It is back up where it's been for decades. And it turns out the majority of people still support the police. There, I think that there's a there's a liberal bias in, in sort of our world that, yeah, there's like a total, there's a this is a total watershed moment for policing. And it's not actually clear to me that that's the case. And so I say all of this because as a union head, as a chief, 
I think they know full well that if they can position this as an issue of officer safety, that's a very strong strategic position to argue from, in part because you got to do a lot of legwork, in my case, several years, many pages, to articulate why this is a simplistic and actually dangerous way of structuring policing that has these unintended consequences. And a mayor is not going to do that. Mayors don't operate on that kind of timescale. Nobody that wants to see change happen locally is going to do that. And it makes changing budgets, it makes changing law, it makes changing policy very difficult because that, again, is this rhetorically and logically very difficult point to argue against. Because after all, like you don't want dead cops, do you, Governor? Do uh-huh. you, Mayor? At, at the same time, it's hard to deny that like this is an important public service and these you know, these people who do this are, mm-hmm. are performing a real community service. And so how do you, like, what's the answer then? Because you don't want to disregard officer safety. And, you know, even if a danger mm-hmm. is objectively low, you still want to respect the genuine concerns of these people performing a service. So how do, how do we strike the balance? Yeah, I think that's, you know, if that, that's the question that if I had the answer, I uh, would have written it down probably tweeted it out or something, try to get some credit. Yeah. <laughs> I think from my end, you know, I've I've had the the opportunity to talk to officers. Some of them are veterans and also just some veterans in my own networks that are not at all involved with with policing. Um, and there is this idea uh, in Seth Stoughton, I'm sorry, Seth Stoughton uh, at University of South Carolina School of Law has written about the warrior cop. And one of the points that I think that he makes it that is spot on is that the warrior as a as an as an archetype is not inherently bad there's this there are these values that i don't think anyone is saying like yeah why would you want bravery that's ridiculous no like bravery is not inherently wrong mastery of oneself and the ability to use violence judiciously and in defense of others is not inherently wrong the problem is that the warrior as this archetype uh, and in the kind of training that i describe and the way that policies are designed to protect misuses of violence to protect officers from all kinds of accountability, not just policy, but also the laws of states in the U.S., have allowed this to metastasize into something else. It has turned into something that is not about protecting and serving. It is about feeling like one is being a cop. And that somehow is not the same thing as protecting and serving. It becomes something else. It becomes punisher skulls, it becomes Punisher skulls with thin blue lime flags. It becomes engravings on the side of AR-15s, like the case in, I believe it was Mesa, engraving things like you're fucked on the, on the ejection port of a rifle. It becomes this very politicized and really dangerous view of what it means to be a police officer. And so from my end, knowing that policing is designed as an institution that distributes violence, that's the point. It's why they're the or else, as Bittner said, of society. We should just recognize that that's what police are. I think that there is value in thinking about how we can sort of work around the edges and do more crisis intervention training and do more de-escalation training. I don't think that's a bad idea. I also don't think that we're going to train our way out of this problem. Fundamentally, we live in a country that has more guns than people. We live in a country where we have systematically eroded the social safety net. We have a, a housing crisis that is only getting worse. We have a mental illness crisis that is only getting worse opiate dependency, alcoholism, more guns have entered the market this year than ever, record gun sales, that structure is not changing. The police will remain an institution that revolves around violence. What I think we can try and do is not actively make it worse. And so there's training. uh, So I always, I point to, his name is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Uh, He's a retired uh, army 
lieutenant colonel, former professor at West Point, and he is the self-professed founder of the field of killology. Dave Grossman has never been a cop. He's never seen combat, mm-hmm. but he's written a lot about the psychology of killing. It's pop science at best, but he is one of the most popular police trainers in the country, if not the world. And he is a he is a trainer that talks about officers being sheepdogs. But to be a sheepdog, one must also understand and emulate the predator to protect the sheep. He talks about violence in a way it's designed to be rah rah. It's designed to be a little bit John Philip Sousa brass bands. But when you take people that have relatively minimal training, police officers, compared to, say, an actual special forces operator who has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of training, if not thousands, you're going to get some deviation from the ultimate goal. Can we can we follow up on that? Because you did you did a good job. And I wanted to talk about that. You say like this preoccupation with danger it has some very generates some concrete problems that we have to deal with like the warrior culture is not free and even if it does afford some level of safety consciousness or esteem to a a profession that deserves Mm. esteem right all professions deserve esteem but it has problems like it's it's not free society is suffering for this warrior culture society is suffering for this danger-centric mentality. What are those? Like, what's happening when people are just obsessed with danger and see it around any corner? What, what are the negative consequences that we get from that? Yeah, I mean, so to, so to continue with the Grossman thing, right? Like, he is a strong proponent of you need to assume that every time you're interacting with somebody, this could be the end. Uh, and if you don't take the steps to make sure that this is not the end, like, you're playing with your own life and you're playing with the lives of other officers and that's unacceptable. Uh, and the reason why I bring him up and when I say like we shouldn't make things actively worse is because Dave Grossman's teachings are literally in the official state post-approved training of some states. I have the documents. And that is absurd. There's no place for that in American policing. There's no place for that in policing, period. Uh, so what are some simple things that we could do? You, you ask, like, what do we do? Don't do that. Uh, states should not give, they're like basically continuing education credits. Don't give continuing education credits for when officers go to trainings put on by people like Dave Grossman, that will require that you have a little bit more oversight over the courses that you're approving to get those credits. You shouldn't use taxpayer dollars to send officers to those trainings. That's like the low hanging fruit. Don't like, don't double down on this in your actual training in the academy, Mm -hmm. right? If officers are going to go do it, they're going to go do it. Don't spoon feed it to them. And as for your, your, your follow-up questions, like what is, what is the cost? In the paper, I describe some stuff as really low cost, Right. Touching the trunk of a car is not going to get somebody killed. Though actually it turns out that some police argue that that would get them killed because then somebody would know where they're standing. And so it's a tactical error to press down on the trunk. That's a new one that I actually heard this morning. But generally speaking, an officer touches the trunk of a car or puts his fingerprint on the on the, on the the rear taillight. No one's dying because of it. How they stand is not going to get them killed in all likelihood. But the speeding around, the driving without seatbelts to get your fellow officer to make sure that you don't get tangled up on your seatbelt that gets them killed in car crashes. It gets citizens killed when a police car plows into a sedan that's carrying a family on their way to church. Uh, and at the interactional level, you're entering these interactions primed to look for threat. And so even innocent gestures, movements, somebody who's just nervous because they're talking to cops or they're nervous because they have weed in their pocket. Having weed in your pocket doesn't mean that you're a lethal threat. But if you're nervous, suddenly all these things can be used to justify treating someone like a lethal threat which leads to handcuffing people, putting them on the ground, putting them in the car, treating them a certain way, patting them down. These lead to these, again, 
These are usually legal, which speaks to more of the expansion of police powers than anything. It leads to these interactions that even if nobody dies, nobody's hurt, broken and bleeding, that they are chipping away at this relationship between the police and the public. People feel every time that they're being treated like an other. They are being treated like someone that is not a friend, not a co-producer of public safety. They're being treated as a threat. Um, And officers may defend it and say, well, this is legal. This is what I was trained to do. And I'm totally on board. It is legal and it is trained. And that's the problem. This is why it doesn't actually require monsters. You don't have to depend on like foaming at the mouth racists that are like closeted KKK members. It can actually be very well-meaning cops that are going to perpetuate these kinds of interactions all under the name of officer safety, of preventing that they themselves don't go home that night. So is it like we're trapped in a loop where we're sort of alarming people or we're, we're systematically raising the alarm and sort of the alarm that people harbor lead to bad decisions or escalation or things that ultimately result in more accidents, more alienation, more alienating events, you know, more, more violence involved in police. And it might be something that is counterproductive in the grand scheme of things, even, even to the interests of the police, you're saying. I think that's right. And I think that I would characterize it as basically where do you displace the error? And so from, from an officer's perspective, engaging in the things that I've talked about, touching the trunk, stepping out of the way of a door when you ring the doorbell because they're worried about getting shot through the door, not standing by windows, cuffing somebody or pulling them out of the car. All of those are measures that are taken to reduce the likelihood of a fatal error. But that error is being displaced. The cost of that error is constantly being displaced from the public. And so for the officer, they are trying to minimize the probability of being shot, killed, hurt. And the public is what's enabling them to displace that error. And then by extension, they are actually raising the likelihood of all kinds of other things happening. So again, like there's no free lunch and the, 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 the displacement of that risk goes somewhere. Somebody bears it. In some cases, it's the public. And in other cases, it's still officers. They just bear it in things that they're not talking about, things that don't make it through that filter that they are inculcated with in the academy and in the department. They're not trained to think about car accidents, or they actually they actually do get training about wearing their seatbelts and doing those kinds of things. And they know the policies. They know. It actually is just, it's very minimal. It doesn't, it doesn't resonate in the same way within the cultural frame of the danger imperative. And at the end of the day, and I think it's, it's one of the questions that I've gotten several times is, well, Michael, couldn't officers doing the things that you're describing actually be why deaths are decreasing? If anything, couldn't you argue that what the police are doing is working? So I think that there's actually a lot of work to be done to prove that's the case, to draw that causal arrow. But let's say that that's true. Let's say that it's because of all the things that I'm describing. There are still costs. The decrease in officer deaths is being presumably born someplace else. And it may not even be citizen deaths, yeah. but it will be handcuffings. Uh, it will be getting sat on curbs. It will be getting shouted at or treated poorly. And that has costs arguably much more far-reaching costs than the death of individual officers. If we think about George Floyd, if we think about protests, if we think about $10 million lawsuits that are coming out of taxpayer dollars, those costs are massive compared to individual assaults, say. And the only way you can really defend it is if you're willing to tell me that you believe an officer's life is somehow inherently worth more than a citizen's. And most people aren't willing to take that stand. Have you ever uh, done any comparative work I'm an immigrant from Canada and obviously I'm white. So I'm going to everything I experience with the cops is going to be filtered through that. 
But as a white person who's been on both sides of the border, I have found that my own interactions with police are often, it's like the police engage sometimes in managing a situation by establishing dominance rather than by de-escalating is my sort of naive impression of the cultural differences that I've been exposed to in police culture. So I, I often find my interactions with Canadian police when I've had them, which is when I've done most of my, you know, whatever stuff that I could get in, in touch with them, the police, I've always found it to be very boring. Like the a- attitudinally or the, the tone of the interaction with them uh, always felt to me almost like it was boring and like you were dealing with bureaucrats who wouldn't engage emotionally in the event. Whereas I, I have found American police officers, uh, my interactions, they're more likely to come in hot and to and the interaction to be like, listen, I'm the boss of this. You mm. stay put. You do this. I'm the boss of you now. I, I often found that qualitative mm-hmm. difference because police in Canada are definitely concerned about yeah. getting hurt. And I think they take the same precautions, but I rarely, I don't feel as much this dominance dynamic. And I'm wondering, is there anything to that? Have you ever had an exposure to that? Oh yeah, no. I mean, so this um, you know, this is this has been referred to in literature as command and control policing. Okay. The way that I've had it described to me by officers in the field is this idea of command presence. Now, command presence is a very malleable topic, and when I ask them to define it, I get all kinds of descriptions. Some of it is is very phenotypical, so they call it being squared away. I'm writing about this now in, in the book. Um, and that's just about having your, your badges polished, your shirt is pressed, it's clean, you look squared away. It's, it, it's something that stems from the military or from, from the Navy. And you just, you look sharp. Other parts of command presence are, as was written in one Police One article, it's about not just making it clear that you're in charge, but you're in charge right fucking now. Uh, and that is something that does get explicitly taught in academies. You'll hear this this adage, right. first you ask, then you tell, then you make. Some officers jump to the make a little bit faster than others. There's going to be some individual variation there. Mm. But the underlying theory is that an officer must, as again, this has been talked about in for now, like for decades, maintain the edge. And the edge is the edge of the, the edge over the other person. Uh, more modern language might be you have to have a tactical advantage. Now, tactical advantage can be, again, how you're standing. It can be where your car's parked. It can be shining a flashlight in somebody's eyes so that they, so you can see them, but they can't really see you. But the idea is that you always have the upper hand because if you, for a moment, allow this other person to not be in your control, you are risking disaster, right? You're allowing them the opportunity to resist. And that is unacceptable. And so you preemptively, seize control of every interaction it's funny because the interaction feels on the other side like someone comes in escalating absolutely like there's no there's no de-escalation presence in the interaction and my understanding of a lot of gun violence is a lot of gun violence results after an interaction in which there are sort of successive iterations Mm -hmm. of escalation very few shootings come in hot with the guns blazing, but rather it's two people pushing at each other. And it's it's funny because that type of mentality, it seems to me, would ultimately lead to more violence. Like the thing that you're trying to prevent, it's like it doesn't seem like an essential element, but I feel it here, or at least the at least in New York, not in my predominantly white suburb where it feels more like Canada and the thank you, ma'am, thank you, sir style of policing, but certainly in the city. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, and so there is some work in social psychology. Randall Collins, of course, has his, his excellent microsociological account of violence. And I, I'd have to find the paper and I can send you sites if you want to post it along with the podcast. But it was a basically it was it was a law a law professor that analyzes very it's a very obvious point from the outside. But once you're in and you're like, oh, no, that does make a lot of sense that it's men. It's men frequently interacting with men. It's often young men interacting with young men. And these are status competitions. And so this young cop, in particular a young cop, will walk into an interaction with someone who might even be older than them, right? So the cop is 23 and he's talking to a drunk 40-year-old who's having a tip with his wife. And this 20-something-year-old 20, this 20 is trying to seize control of the situation in a grown man's house who also happens to be drunk you can see where this goes. So remove even, make them the same age and no one's intoxicated. You are still entering into these interactions that didn't need to be inherently antagonistic. You're trying to force a power differential as opposed to assuming that it's here. Right. And that is going to lead to a qualitatively different interaction over the course of however long that lasts. And the only reason that you probably don't see more of these devolve into violence is because usually the officer is the only one that has a gun. Usually. See, that that's interesting. You're basically, that's an arrangement in which it is the civilian's job to de-escalate with the police officer. Totally. Absolutely. The police officer is basically moving through the interaction as the menace. I guess part of the underlying philosophy of that is if you stoke fear of police interactions in civilians, then they will learn to try to de-escalate with you. And you can control a situation by instilling fear. It's it's very interesting. It's a very complicated. We the one thing that I'm gathering from this is that policing is very complicated. I wouldn't presume to you know tell them how to do their job, but these observations make a lot of sense. That they're in nobody's interest, not in a police officer's interest, not in public's interest. That it might actually be sort of like a script that we're locked into that it is doing damage uh, that we might want to extricate ourselves from. I think that 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 rings true to me. The, the complicated nature of policing, I think, is is an inherently human one, right? So, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I show my method students at the beginning of every semester um, when I explain, like, what is social science versus bench science or quote unquote hard science? And he says, you know, when humans enter the equation, things are no longer linear. They go curvilinear. That's why physics is easy and sociology is hard. And for my, my intro policing students, when I was back at Rutgers, you know, I, I would present them questions uh, because we were in the middle of kind of the rise of the defund conversation. And so I would ask them, okay, let me just like give you an example of stuff that I've seen. So like you arrive at a home and again, same example, someone is drunk. The male in this situation is drunk and there is a, a female. She happens to be his girlfriend. They live together. Uh, there's a baby in the house. Uh, you walk in and she clearly has a black eye. TV's busted up and he is visibly drunk. He's got blood on his hand. This is pretty clear. You can put the pieces together. He just beat the shit out of his wife or his girlfriend. At some point, the TV was broken. And there are mm -hmm. mandatory arrest laws in many states for specifically these cases. You got to get that person out of the house to protect the victim. So you're the officer and you say, all right, sir, put your hands behind your back. And he says, fuck you. So what do we do in a defund world? And I'm not saying that there's not a place where we get to where we have the proper resources and we have robust communities that could address those things. I say today, right, right now. Well, the gun, I guess, is the answer, no? It's force. The, the, the answer is violence. This guy's not going to go. How do you get this guy out? He, he has to go. He's clearly already hurt someone. What are you going to do? And I think that there is there is a certain degree of a lack of understanding of how often these like imperfect 
but really consequential decisions happen that have nothing to do with with bank robberies or murders or, or gang members. It actually is it's these like really crushing, mundane conflicts that absorb most of an officer's life. And they sift through them as best they can with relatively limited resources. Mm. And I think that there's an inability to understand that in part because we don't talk about that part of it. We emphasize the gun, cha- we, the, the yeah. gun chases, the gunfights and the car chases. And we don't give a vision into that. And not say that those things don't result in horrible miscarriage of justice. They do. They do result in brutality. They result in all those things. But what I try to get my students to think through is, okay, but like, what would you do? You had to do this thing. What is, what is the way to think through this? Yeah. And as you say, we have a script. We have this narrative that we're in that kind of traps us into the zero-sum game. It traps us into making these really unideal decisions over and over and over again. Yeah, so you could see how defunding the police could actually make matters much worse. I mean, it's much easier to neutralize a non-compliant person if you have at least a lot of people without using, like, mm-hmm. weapons, for example. Sheer force of numbers. Yeah, and uh, you make it worse. You, you, I guess defunding the police ultimately leaves a lot of policemen with the gun as their only, like, backup in dealing with, like, a scary situation. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of, I want to say that his... John Rappaport, professor at University of Chicago, uh, he made an interesting point that stuck with me and I keep mentioning it when I talk to people, is that let's say that we actually get to a place where we we have constrained the police function. So they're not going to mental illness calls. We've actually perfectly delineated it. No more mental illness, no more homelessness, uh, no more uh, petty property damage that could just be like taken care of by some city bureaucrat to, to basically file the insurance claim. That's what police are there for much of the time is to create a report. They can go to insurance. We've removed the police from this. And instead, they're only going to go to situations that have to do with violence, which is kind of the, that's the sine qua non at the center of it is, okay, but what do we do about violence? Because violence is real and we don't like violence. So they're only going to go to violence. What we might actually be doing is creating a police force that will be further ingrained in the assumption of violence. What you might be mechanically doing is creating a police force that will be especially lethal, that you will be shrinking the denominator, the number of total cases they go to, and perhaps let's even assume that the numerator stays constant. The proportion of cases that are going to result in somebody getting shot or beaten or hurt is likely to be high just, just because of arithmetic. Is that the answer? In some ways, I think that's where we're, that's where we're sort of destined to head because, as I said, what the police do is distribute yeah. force. Yeah. That's, that's the point. Um, maybe we don't end on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me ask you before. I, first of all, this was amazing. I, I thought we were going to chat for twenty minutes. We're coming up on an hour, I have to make this a multi-part series now. <laughs> but, uh, that's cool. I mean, it's awesome. I'll take great conversation wherever I can get it. But like, let me tell me, what are you working on now? Like, what directions are you going on moving from uh, this uh, danger imperative? Sure. Thank you for uh, thank you for the chat. This has been good. Uh, so right now, the, the the project front and center is is the book. Um, so it's the same data that has been at the center of the danger imperative. A recent piece in criminology on the commemoration of death, so memorials and tattoos, and all, again, I mentioned artifacts earlier in the podcast. Just kind of where they come from and what purpose they serve to to maintain this cultural uh, preoccupation with danger and death. So the book is sort of a, a broader picture. Working title is Parallel on Patrol. I'm not a huge fan of the title, so open to suggestions. Hit up my email. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sort of advancing this broader argument about what policing is. And so my, my claim is that policing as it stands is perilous policing. 
uh, and perilous policing is policing that is oriented and structured by the preoccupation with violence and death. Uh, and it allows you to understand all kinds of stuff about how policing continues to manifest. It helps you understand misconduct. It helps you understand the blue wall. It helps you understand the necessity of qualified immunity, at least among police, why they view it as utterly necessary. It lets you understand, again, inequalities uh, without relying on the bad apples narrative. It's actually not about bad cops. Uh, and I think one of the one of the claims that I sort of begin the book with, as I'm currently writing it, is that I'm telling you a version of the world that doesn't depend on racism. Racism is real. I mean, in fact, we have much evidence that racism exists in policing. That's not actually my point. In fact, I take that as a given. But I can tell you a story where even if we had perfectly unbiased officers, you are still going to see inequalities because of the system that surrounds policing. Policing is one institution in a web of many. And so policing could be perfectly egalitarian. That doesn't change segregation. That doesn't change the availability of firearms. That doesn't change a history of racism. It doesn't change all those other things. And so if policing continues to be inequitably distributed, well, what the police do is distribute violence. If they're going to certain places more, there's going to be more violence. That's, that is, again, it's a, it's, it's, it's a mechanical product. Um, now you layer on top of that racism, you label on top of that bias, implicit or explicit. And of course we see these things, right? So in some ways it's, it's sort of extending Tenahasi Coates' claim that our criminal legal system is not broken. It is working as intended. And policing is very much a part of that story. So that's kind of the thing front and center. Working new project with uh, two people at Rutgers, um, two graduate students, BJ Chillar and Katarina Kaplan, looking at police vendors at IACP. So who sells stuff to the cops? They're not the people that you might think. Uh, it's not just tanks and guns. It's actually things like printers and office chairs, but it's a much bigger market than I think most people understand. And so that's kind of stuff kind of in the moment, trying to stay busy in 2021. This seems like an interminable extension of 2020, unfortunately. Yeah, right. Got, got, got a lot of time at the desk to do all those projects. <laughs> uh, I sit right here a lot. <laughs> Michael Sierra Arevalo from the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for talking to us. No, thank you for having me.